Welcome to Funding the Dream, the number one podcast for the number one crowdfunding platform, Kickstarter. Now here's your host, Richard Bliss. My guest today is someone who's not been on the show before, but he and I have known each other for quite a few years, and he has been involved in the board game industry for quite a while, successful on Kickstarter. He also does a series of videos that are instructional about preparing your projects for protospiels and game reviews, excuse me, for uh, trade shows. And so I wanted to have him on the show to kind of talk about that. He and I can talk that through. So my guest is Ed Barra from Pencil First Games. Ed, thanks for joining me. Howdy. So Ed... We, uh, we've known each other for quite a few years, and we just spent some time together at Protospiel. I've had some episodes mm-hmm. uh, last month where people were listening to it. And the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you do a series – well, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. But one, let's sure. tell people about Pencil First Games. Sure. So Pencil First Games is my indie publisher, if you will, and um, started off with Liftoff, Get Me Off This Planet, which was my first game and, and a Kickstarter game. And then from there, did Gem Pact, The Siblings Trouble, Heroes and Tricks, and most release recently, Herbaceous. Now, so, Herbaceous did quite, but Herbaceous did quite well, didn't it? Yeah, Herbaceous was my best Kickstarter project and, and subsequently best sort of retail product. Now, again, I mean, it's good. It you know, it's 2,000 backers, $60,000, right? Nothing to shake a stick at, but it, it, it certainly wasn't like some... 250,000 campaign, but... You know, um, it, that's true. Nowadays, we all compare ourselves to the gloom havens out there that are generating, yeah, you know, 30,000 yeah. backers. Yeah, that yeah, is an outlier. That is an outlier. It, it is. and But but I, I think I run good campaigns, and in going to retail, I actually sort of leaned into it and, and printed a larger print run, and it sold out, and we're in a reprint now. So, uh, for sure, um, it, it's been my most successful to date, and we'll see how it, it does after the the next tranche comes into the into the market. So let's talk about um, the beginning, because you and I, before we got on the call, we were talking about the fact that you um, started Liftoff, and I was there. Um, I think we were doing some prototyping uh, in my home. You'd come to my yeah. game night, and uh, we had that out there, and it was successful on Kickstarter. We got to play it. But you mentioned something about the the ramp up to that Kickstarter campaign was something you never wanted to do again. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, at the time I, I, you know, well, board games and probably had, you know, I don't even, I did certainly didn't have a Twitter account. I had Facebook, but I just wasn't deep into the online game community. I wasn't into face. I wasn't on Facebook groups. I wasn't on Twitter. I really wasn't into that part of the scene to me playing board games was just this local thing you did with people. I wasn't really part of the development community. Um, and, Getting into the Kickstarter, and you know, I met Teal at one of those game days or game nights, and that she he introduced me to Tiffany and really and Jamie Stegmeyer and all that material. So I started reading up on it and had to deal with this idea of oh well, you need to get the word out, you need to get people to understand and know what you're doing, and and so I just aggressively ramped up my engagement on Facebook and on Twitter, and it was just this huge lift to get everything. And, and, and while liftoff did well, it was a, oh man, I don't remember, but I think my campaign was a 35 or $40,000 campaign. And it was push, push, push all the way until probably the last four or five days. So, um, really just a big lift. And after it, I felt like there had to be a way to stay engaged with not only the backers who backed liftoff, but just the game community in general and contribute and add back. And, um, you know, when you work on games, they don't, you know, game development takes like a year, perhaps. I mean, it right. depends on the project, right? Sure. And so it's just trying to think of a way I could participate and make something and add value, not just commentary, right? Like add 
give to the community. And, you know, when I was doing liftoff, I had to learn how to film videos and, and, you know, actually did stop motion, which was crazy, but, you know, get comfortable with a camera at least a little bit. And so I decided to do the, the game reviews. And I'd remember, I remembered when I was doing liftoff, I was really looking at reviews and getting people's reviews. I was just shocked that uh, reviews were like 20 minutes long and like they like teaching you the entire game. And it's just like, who wants to sit and watch 20 minute reviews, right? And, and there's a huge audience of people who want to watch 20 minute there reviews. Are, there's, but, and our podcast, yeah. our podcast is 20 minutes. So we'll, we'll remind yeah. people that yes, 20 yeah. minutes, yeah, yeah. right. There it's is a group out there. They're absolutely, and, and I've come to appreciate them and enjoy them, and actually my reviews have gotten longer a little bit, but generally speaking, my thing was, I'm going to tell you about a game like in a minute and a half or two minutes based on how I would pitch it to somebody at the table who I wanted to play it with, if I wanted to play oh, that's it. An excellent, that's uh, an excellent approach, yeah. Yeah, and, and I got feedback. At the time, I was like, I'm not even going to open up the box. I'm just going to be like, hey, we should play this game. Here's why. And then people are like, we want to see the components. We want to know how to play, so... The reviews extended from probably two minutes to now they're like on average five, but they're still shorter than most. Anyway, so that's what got me into just doing content, and I found that I enjoyed it, and I like contributing, and I like having a reason to come back every week. And at some point, uh, the League of Game Makers, Luke Ori and Peter Vaughn, um, asked me if I would do some content for them. I had done a couple written articles, um, and I asked them what that would entail, and they were like, an article a month or something, and that's a lot of writing for me. And so I, uh, I said, how about videos? And they, they seemed jazzed about that. So that's when I started the, the League of Game Maker videos, which now I think I've done probably 30, 40, something like that, maybe, maybe 30. Um, and they're um, either about game design, mechanics, or in particular, most of them about Kickstarter basics and Kickstarter advance. And I just go through all sorts of steps on how to do Kickstarter, how to prepare, protospiel, sort of a mixture between designer, game maker, and publisher, and I just sort of keep... Right, jumping back, back and forth, which is yeah. why I, I want to talk to you, because your last video that you did out there um, was about preparing for a protospiel, taking your project before you put it on Kickstarter and actually taking it and getting somebody to look at it, test it, play it, that type of thing. And so that, and that, that brings up an interesting point, though, in your conversation. I just want to go back here and say that you found a way to give back to the community so that in between those year-long Kickstarter projects, when, it, when you came back the following year after liftoff, everybody knew who you were, right? Oh, every, right. Yeah, much more, many more people. Yeah, no, I guess not sure. everybody. Everybody knows Jamie Stegmeier, but everybody yeah. didn't know, right? But you know my point. Yes, it was much easier now that you had been giving into the community. Now when it came time for you to ask the community to give back, it was a very easy conversation to have. Absolutely, and I, I, what has always stunned me is how open and approachable the entire community is at all levels and through the videos and even little things like maybe i won't do it forever but for now i i I contact everyone who's backed me on a campaign the amount of people that have met and then met at a convention or their publisher or they print i like the amount of connections you get from being active like and i don't just mean friends i mean people who do give more value than simply backing your next campaign is huge. So it has been amazingly valuable to be active. And I think also when you're a designer, I mean, this isn't for everybody, but when you're a designer, you're always like at odds with publishers because you just want something from them. Right. Um, But I've found since I have that reviewer angle, suddenly publishers also want something from me sometimes. So I don't really get that much out of it, but I can have a conversation that doesn't just seem like I'm some designer Wanting, like, right, take, take, wanting, take. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. So, so I've, it's really been um, great. And I, I've actually, you know, I find I enjoy it and I like sharing. And 
So it's cool. So that's what we wanted to share is because in your video, you talked about some key things that people come to do. We're going to talk about board games here. I'm going to talk about your Kickstarter campaign and that you should be prototyping. Obviously, we should be talking about prototyping your board game at these events, board these board game, unpubs, protospiels, getting yep. people to play test it. And then you said in your video, there were some key things that you can do to prepare yourself to go to something like protospiel. You just don't show up with your game and get a table, sit down and hope people walk up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think if you're somebody who's a designer, aspiring designer, or even a veteran, one, again, if you've never been to a protospiel and there's one, even if you don't have a table, I would just go to it. I always think people do best when they're familiar with spaces and um, events. So like, if you have an opportunity to be at a protospiel, the, the time you go when you actually want to participate, you're not going to feel sort of awkward and not knowing what it's like. So I think that, I mean, that, that goes for lots of different things as well. But um, I think really upfront, one of the most important things before the, the protospiel is to know what you're trying to learn or, get, you know, find out about from your game, right? I think what I see you, a lot of people. At, no, at, at, sorry, what do you ahead. mean by that? What do you mean trying to learn? Yeah, well, so, you know, I, I see a lot of people go to protospiels who just sort of bring their games, and they've got a bunch of games, and they're just sort of playing them, right? But really, if if you can understand where you are in your project and say, okay, well, I feel really good about the game, but I feel like the balance might be off, or I don't know if I should, this should be, I don't know, card drafting or dice drafting, or if you're playing between two mechanics, or if you're, you know, you're thinking about whether you want to do fantasy or sci-fi. Sure. You know, what are your sort of... clear questions that you have at the moment and sort of thinking through that in advance prior to getting there really could lead to a much more um, productive protospiel. I mean, you're always going to learn things you're not expecting and that's one of the values of it. But I think sort of having that forethought to think through what you're trying to learn and what your objectives are from a design perspective and a product perspective, I think is really powerful as is then preparing, um, your materials and doing a really nice job getting your prototype or your version set um, and having a questionnaire or other materials to bring with you, just putting the extra, and it's not 20 hours, putting the extra three hours before the event to sort of make sure that you have all your stuff together just goes a long way. A lot of people blow their first half day or first day at a protospiel because they forgot something or they, you know, played a bunch of games and they didn't tell the rules. Right. I mean, just the more you can sort of, Take it seriously. Have fun, but take it seriously as a real opportunity to improve your game. Um, I think the better you'll, you'll, the more you'll get out of it. And it's huge because you have tons of designers at Protospiels, but also just lots of gamers and players, and it's a, it's a really open crowd. It is. And so what's interesting is that this open crowd, I think some game designers, based on my experience of watching and the experience of going to some of these Protospiels, I think one of the preparations they need to make is a mental preparation to steel yourself against an emotional reaction to people criticizing oh, sure. That's always game. a big one. Right? Yeah. And I watched I, that. The, the last one I went to, the guy had an interesting game, but it had some re- mechanics that I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I was playing with Grant um, from Hyperbole Games. Sure. And Grant is a great game designer. Uh, Grant has done multiple Kickstarter campaigns. And Grant, um, in essence, ripped the game apart in a nice way, but I could tell that the designer wasn't taking any notes. He was just nodding his head going, yeah, 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 okay, but this is why I did this. And as Grant was talking, I was like, yeah, that's why I didn't like it. Oh, yeah, that's why I didn't like it. Oh, there's another point why I didn't like it. And as we walked away, Grant and I talked briefly that the game I really liked, he could have easily made the changes that Grant recommended and come back the next day with a game that I probably would have really wanted to play. 
And so I saw him struggling a little bit, the game creator, with this feedback that was coming in fast and furious where he thought he had it down pat, but here suddenly everybody sitting down and playing yeah. the game was like, no, this ain't working, and here's why. Yeah, I think as game creators, whether it's a protospiel or a con or whatever, getting good at receiving criticism and negative feedback, whether or even reviews online and all that, but getting comfortable with this idea that like you have your opinion, other people have their opinion, and being able to derive value from it without tensing up and getting defensive um, is huge. Now, certainly, if if you want, you know, sometimes you're like, I'm not interested in ripping up all my mechanics. I just wanted to know if it was balanced or not. That's the kind of thing that if you think about it in advance, you can let your players know that, right? You can say, hey, everybody, it's pretty far along. I really want to know how these balances work. But people are still going to give you every piece of feedback they have, right? Right. And so, um, yeah, I think getting comfortable with yourself and with your game and understanding that people are going to give feedback and that's the point. And <laughs> right. how, that's why you're there. And how you, yeah, it's why you're there. And But it's hard for a lot of people. I mean, I've always... The amount of whether you're a designer or you know somebody doing a Kickstarter, the amount of skill sets you have to carry to see an idea to a product is, you know, in professional life, <coughs> excuse me, not something you typically put in one person. There's typically people all along the way exactly. who have those different skill sets. But when you're independent, you're doing it on your own. You sort of have to learn how to handle running a playtest that's different than being some designer. Right, and, 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 and speaking of which, you just recently, with one of your projects, you start to make these contacts, and suddenly when a project funds on Kickstarter, you find yourself writing checks, I think is what you called it, right? Because you have built up this network where you don't have to do it all yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, you know, just Pencilverse Games in general, this opportunity to be creative and work with other people, and in particular, this is sort of, I started it after I was working at Disney, and... um it was really the strong opposition to the idea of like having to ship on a date and not making the thing you want and, and, and being having market forces and all that stuff. And that, that all, you know, is true in, in board games, but you know, I really just wanted to be able to do what I wanted for, for lack of a better way of saying right. it. But, but I also like working with people and the reality is I'm a generalist and I, you know, I design and I, I do lots of different things, but if I want a game that, you know, I don't know, is a worker placement game. And I'm not, you know, it's not like I'm going to take on worker placement if I don't have, you know, if that's not my type of game design, for example, um, or I don't know, miniature strategy game, right? Where it's like, you know, but I really want to make one. Well, I'm going to go try to work with people. And, you know, I was talking, you know, pencil first games probably coming on three years now, two and a half, maybe depends on how you think of it. But um, after Herbaceous and Heroes and Tricks, sometime in, you know, March or April, I was, doing royalty checks and, you know, art checks and, you know, different people get paid in different ways. But I was like sitting there doing my monthly and I had, I had eight envelopes going to eight people in eight different, maybe not eight different States, but many States. Right. And it was sort of cool. It was like, Hey, look at this. This is a little, it's not like, it's a little ecosystem. I still have to work all the time on my real job, but like, you know, it's, it was growing from when it was just, you know, just me. So it, it was, it was cool. It is cool, and and I appreciate uh, your perspective because it's part of that this ecosystem this, uh, of the Kickstarter economy that has started to build up, particularly in the board game space, where so many people now are benefiting from. Hey, if you want to be creative, be creative. If you want to be an artist, you want to be a designer, you want to be a publisher, you want to be whatever it might be. I mean, there's even folks who are doing rule, you know, rules reviews. If that's what you want, yeah. To do. I actually, I think a great campaign to look at 
that just happened was a uh, grim forest. I don't know. It, it'll probably be a month by the time you hear this, but the, um, um, James did a James Hudson. Yeah. He's, yeah. He was on the show. Oh, there you just, have it. Just oh, recently. There. Yes. But what were you going to yeah. say about him? Cause maybe well, I was just going to say he, he really pulled together a fantastic group of people to make a fantastic product. Right. And, and he did a great job of profiling them and representing them, but it wasn't just your designer artist. One more. He had like seven. He had, the rule book and the yep. Kickstarter camp. I mean, he really took that power team approach and it certainly paid off for him with that title. Um, it, it did. It did. And I think you're starting to see more and more of that, that the idea that the, the go it alone, uh, lone wolf, I'm going to do everything myself, control freak. And I use that term affectionately. Sure. Um, it, it, it's getting too big to be able to do that and effectively c- compete from artwork quality to game prototype preparation quality to, uh, the whole social media stuff that you talked about. It's just hard for one person all by themselves to do it all. Absolutely, from a time perspective, but also, again, that skill perspective. It is, it, but it also, you know, that's also where Kickstarter starts separating, you know, the board game scene on Kickstarter sort of pulling away from just, I mean, this is, this is two years old, right? But pulling away from just being some guy who wants to make, or gal who wants to make a game, right? I mean, you're you're really, this is where almost all, board game publishers of one size or another are starting to, to compete, right? So yes, it's becoming it definitely a perfect, makes it hard. Yeah, it's almost a perfect, you have to spend so much money just to get your game ready to be shown so much effort and time spent marketing the project before the project even goes live. Oh, it's so. super daunting. I mean, and you know, I have, I have more projects coming in the future and you know, you don't feel, I don't feel confident about any of them. And I, you know, I have a leg up now. I know what I'm doing. I've been through it. I, you know, I have better network. But none of it feels like, oh, yeah, that's just going to be a no-brainer. And you see it. You see lots of campaigns that, you you know, the Tiny Epic Kingdom big box game. Right. Um, I forgot the name of it, but they, you know, and I think they probably funded, but they, they canceled it too because they, they were probably shooting for some number. But they were routinely doing, you know, huge, huge $250,000, $500,000, dollars campaigns. But then they made one, and I don't have any inside information, but as far as I can tell, they made one that had a $100 entry point. Right. And it's like we buy you because we like the tiny epic stuff that costs six bucks. Why are you selling us a hundred dollars? <laughs> right. And you know, you you gotta learn and I think they're going back and refactoring it and they'll come sure. out again. But it's you know, just just because you had success once, the market's always changing, people's perspectives are always changing. But you know. had Seth Hyatt on the show a couple of months ago talking about that very thing. He's done forty. And he got rejected. Yeah, he's he's a pro. Yeah. Right? And I got remember re- that. Got rejected. So yes, his lesson was don't it doesn't matter how many times you've done this. Ed, I appreciate you taking some time to be with us uh, on the show. Where can people go find out more information about the, your games and your videos? Well, so on the game side, there's PencilFirstGames.com uh, or on Facebook. You can look up Pencil First and it links all the Facebook pages for all of our games and upcoming games. Uh, me, I'm at eBariff on Twitter. And certainly my YouTube channel, which is easiest to find, is Edo's Game Reviews. But... Also, you probably can look up Edo's League of Game Makers videos or something like that. It should come up on YouTube or the League of Game Makers site. Those are the things that I'm doing the most. And that's Edo's, E-D-O apostrophe S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Ed, thank you very much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. My guest has been Ed Bariff from Pencil First Games. We've been talking about what to do to prepare yourself for your prototypes as you take them to a protospiel. Hopefully you found something inspiring and helpful. Ed was very uh, generous with his time and his advice. Thanks for listening. Take care.